Aloha. You are listening to the Dangerous Love Podcast. I'm your host, Chad Ford. I have a very special guest today. Her name is Nasifi Naz Kafu. She is the executive director of Peace Players South Africa and a longtime friend and just really excited to have you on the pod today. Welcome aboard, Naz. Thank you, Chad. Uh, looking forward to, to the chat. I want to give a little bit of an introduction to Naz before we we jump on. Uh, Naz was born and raised in the province of the Eastern Cape and now uh, resides in KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. She started as a participant, one of the young people in Peace Players South Africa's leadership development program. Then she became a coach, then moved on to an area coordinator, then moved on to become an international fellow at Peace Players Northern Ireland. It's quite a, quite a change from Durban, South Africa. Then returned to South Africa to where she's now the executive director running the program at Peace Players South Africa. Nas, that's, that's quite a journey. And I want to start by getting our listeners to, to know a little bit more about you. So maybe you talk about your life in Durban and what led you as a participant to participate in Peace Players program. Uh, and for our listeners who may have, who maybe haven't listened to uh, some of our other podcasts, we've, we've featured Peace Players Middle East, and we've p- featured in the past uh, Peace Players Brooklyn, as well as the founders of Peace Players. Peace Players is an organization that brings together young people through the game of basketball. Their goal is to bridge divides, uh, to create leaders, and to really start collaboratively problem-solving in communities. And they do this through the game of basketball. And so, Nas, talk to me about your life growing up uh, in South Africa, and what led you to become a participant at Peace Players? Uh, thank you, Chad. Um, so I am born and raised in the Eastern Cape um, province in South Africa. And at the age of 13, I moved to Durban um, in KZN in Wazulu-Natal province. And I've been here since then. And growing up in the Eastern Cape, I call I used to call it uh, where the sun does not shine because it's really rural and surrounded by nature, mountains. Um, you walk for about 20 kilometers going to, to and from school. Uh, so it was a very humble um, uh, rural background that I come from. And moving into the big city like Durban was quite a challenge for me in the beginning, uh, suffering with confidence issue, not trusting my English, moving into the city, if I could speak English. And uh, while I was here from Eastern Cape, I grew up playing sports, uh, cricket, soccer, uh, netball, all different types of sports. And moving into Durban, obviously, the I want to play, to continue to be able to play sports. And for the first time, um, when I was 18 years old, that was the first time I, I saw basketball on TV. And I was like, oh, what is this sport? It looks like netball, but everyone can score and you don't need to wear short dresses. You can wear shorts, uh, long shorts. And I saw basketball on TV and a friend of mine from school introduced me to Peace peace Players who was playing for Peace at the time and said that, yeah, I'm playing for this team. Do you want to come? And I said, I'm 18 years old. Um, I've never played before. So that was my initial introduction just 18-year-old um, playing with 13-year-olds and introducing to the sport. 
And what really kept me was the coach who was very motivating and inspiring and um, kept, uh, I, I took like three months to learn how to do a layup. And my coach was just very patient with me and that I've stuck with the organization since then. You started at, uh, you know, for, for our listeners that might not understand the timeline at the very beginning, really of peace players, it even had a different name back then yeah. playing for peace. <laughs> South Africa was actually the first site for for peace players and so you were really one of the pioneers. What we talk about peace players bridging divides and what did that look like for you as a young person? Obviously you were learning basketball and that was a new sport to you and part of the draw in. What else did you feel like you were getting out of peace players? Uh, as far as you know, whether whether it was conflict resolution or life skills or whatever, what was what was coming out of that experience for you as a participant? Yeah, for me, peace players was very different from any like uh, as I said that growing up, I played many sports. It was a very different experience from anything I've ever come across. Um, South Africa is a very complex country, uh, so in terms of divides, there's vast. A uh, number of uh, of divides. If I can just maybe uh, go back a little bit, where I'm from in the Eastern Cape, that it's uh, it's a black community. Obviously, where I grew up, I've never been into a multiracial school or met people of other, from other races. My whole childhood, until I was 15 years old, when I moved to the city and I started seeing different races together, um, and attending school now in the city with uh, had one or two people of different races in my high school, and peace players provided that opportunity. Um, to not only being coached by great young mentors, young coaches who are from those communities where we were playing, um, but also an opportunity to meet people that you would have never get a chance to meet. Uh, so Durban and South Africa as a whole is still very much segregated, that if you um, live in the township, uh, if you ever see a white person in the township, there's a 99% chance that they're not South African. <laughs> Uh, so uh, vice versa, other communities as well, the, the very secu uh, secluded and segregated. So you might not, not unless you go to a city school, you might be able to go to school with different people of different races and get to see them as well. So I think I liked the, the opportunity to get not only to, to do what I was passionate about and what I love, but an opportunity to meet people I would have never had a chance to. Nelson Mandela is elected president of South Africa in 1994. Right. And with massive, massive changes to a country that had been mired in apartheid and, you know, an official segregation uh, of the races with white rule, the minority white rule over the vast, vast majority uh, of, of, of people that were black. You were born essentially kind of right. In, in the midst of, of, this, uh, of this rebirth of South Africa. Yes, yes. Um, I, I remember when, when I was young, I used to ask like my mom and my grandparents. I was raised by my grandparents. And I used to ask them, what was it like? Uh, because when, obviously in 1994, I think I was five years old, um, in being, growing up in this new South Africa where there was people, there was no soldiers killing people and shooting people in the streets anymore. Uh, so for us, we really got to understand the apartheid history 
from watching it on TV, at least the violent side of the history. We got to understand it and to learn it from reading about it and then from watching it on TV. Um, and my grandparents and my mom would say how hard it was that you needed to have, um, um, I forget the name of the ID book uh, that they had to carry with them. And at a certain hour, similar to COVID now with all the restrictions that at eight o'clock, if you are caught in a different side of town, you get arrested immediately. Uh, white only areas. So we grew up learning about that. And growing up though, even though there wasn't physical violence between the different races, what was still a challenge is you could still feel to date, you can still feel this rowing and brewing underneath of all this conflict and issues that were not dealt with. Um, and black people still feeling that as a majority, about 73% of the country population is black but 71% uh, of natural resources, including land, is still not owned by Black people in the country. So it is a, it, it's a different challenge in terms of before 94 was violent and then post, it's no longer violent, but the challenges and the struggles are still very much similar. I want to get back to this a little bit later uh, in the podcast because I, I think there's some interesting lessons from South Africa especially with us here in the United States right now and the the uprising maybe even that's fair to call the second civil rights movement that has just really burst on the uh, on the really on the screen since uh, George Floyd was murdered uh you know just several weeks ago South Africa went through something called the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and it had some very positive outcomes um but as you're pointing out it also wasn't sufficient in changing many of the structural things on the ground that needed to change for people. But I want to, I want to sort of now tie that. So you're, you're 18 years old, you're playing in peace players. You're having this opportunity now to um, meet people of different, of different races. You're getting that interaction to play sports with them. I'm assuming it's helping break down some stereotypes and, and also give some leadership skills Talk to me about your your next move because it's 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 an interesting one, right? You leave South Africa after several years with peace players to go to Northern Ireland to be uh, something called a fellow. And a fellow, uh, most peace players uh, areas have these fellows. Most of them, interestingly, came from the United States. They were American college basketball players that were meant to come over and and teach them. You were peace players first homegrown, uh, you know, raised on peace players, I guess at 18, I wouldn't really say raised, but go from peace players participant to becoming a fellow in a different side in Northern Ireland. And I just curious about what motivated you to do that. And then talk to us a little bit about your journey going from Durban to Belfast. That's actually a very great title, From Durban to Belfast. <laughs> I think actually that was the title of my blog, my first blog uh, when I traveled to, to Belfast. Uh, so uh, growing up, I was passionate about uh, two things. I love pe- uh, three things. I love people, I love sports, and I love traveling. So in, throughout my Peace Players journey as a coach, as an area coordinator, uh, I've always, when I learned about fellowship, I've always questioned that how come 
how come there's no South African who can be a fellow in another site? And I really wanted to be a fellow. And I got to learn that if, um, an employee at the time, Ryan Dowie, was also actually a fellow in Belfast uh, for a year back when, in, when Peace Fairs had just started. Uh, and I was like, is that even a thing? And throughout my journey, that was my priority, that one day I want to be an international fellow uh, for Peace Players and I want to be the managing director for Peace Players. Those are my two goals growing up. And when the opportunity came uh, for me to, to, that there was an opening in Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland was of very great interest to me um, because... I was always curious that from a South African standpoint, I'm struggling to understand this conflict between people that look the same. They're all white people. So how do they know? In South Africa, we have uh, five different races. There's black, there's white, there's colored, there's Indian, and then there's Asians, you know? It's so easy for us to, if I see a different color person, I can immediately avoid you and cross the road. It's easy for us to identify the conflict because we look different. And I was just curious to be in, in Northern Ireland and get to understand the conflict of people that actually look the same. How do they tell each other apart for you to even have a conflict with the other person? And when I got to learn about the, the, the Protestant and Catholics, it became of very good interest uh, to me. And I interviewed, when I got the opportunity to, to go to Belfast, I loved it. Besides the weather, I did not like the weather. In the office, I, I, I had a heater on my legs with 20 jackets on. I did not like the weather, but I got to really experience, um, I think that's when the, I got to understand the root of really bridging divides and Belfast is so similar to South Africa because there are physical uh, walls that are actually separating the Protestant and the Catholic communities, literally a small alley or a road or literally a wall to wall that's separating these two communities. And that, very, that fascinated me a lot. And then only to learn uh, while I was in Belfast that actually uh, Durban, our city hall is an, a replica of the city hall in Belfast. Uh, we have, <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess we are really, we do have uh, in, uh, things that are in common. So that, I think that was my initial interest to going to Belfast. And that's when I really learned a lot about the organization, about what is conflict and, and, and uh, peace building. Uh, what does that mean to, in the context of, uh, different countries, different cultures, uh, religion versus race. And uh, for me, that was really um, a great benefit. It seems like there are a, a couple of other similarities, right? Uh, South Africa was in part colonized by the British. Yeah. Uh, the, <laughs> the Dutch and the Afrikaners obviously yeah. are probably more famous for, for their uh, colonization of, of South Africa, but the British... The British Certainly yeah. had a hand in that as well, and uh, that that explains netball and and uh, and cricket and and some of the things yes. <laughs> that that Nas is playing, and and you know there's a lot of different ways to describe the conflict in in Ireland, but one way I also worked out there as a young person, really about about your age. I was in Derry, working with the United Nations, but one way that I, I like to frame it is it's a tribal conflict. One way to think of sort of about Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland are that they look, you know, their skin's the same color, 
but they definitely belong to different tribes. And whether you want to think about religion as a tribe or nationalism as a tribe, being loyal to, to England or being loyal to Ireland, uh, being a colonizer or being you know someone who is indigenous, certainly in South Africa, while there was also racial conflict, there's, there's been tribal conflict yes. as well. Uh, you know, within South Africa. And so, you know, conflict is messy. Mm. And, and, uh, and the the causation of colonization, and the way that it pits people against each other, and the taking of resources from the indigenous inhabitants, to, to, you know, just sort of thinking about ourselves, not just by skin color, that's one way that we can divide ourselves, but thinking about ideology, or, or ethnicity, or tribal, uh, affiliations can also divide us, and sometimes those divides can cut just as just as deep. Uh, definitely. And h- how were you received? Because uh, you know, I've been to, to Ireland a number of times, Northern Ireland. You said, okay, you grew up in a place where it was all black, and you didn't really have a lot of mixing uh, of the races until you were thirteen. My guess is that a lot of young people in Belfast grew up all white. Yeah. Uh, and and don't get a lot of, of mixture, as, especially uh, someone from South Africa. I'm curious how that experience was for you. I mean, one, you're jumping into a completely different culture now surrounded with, with white people, but also how you felt you were seen or that, that experience for you. Yes. Oh, I have amazing stories with that. And moving, I think, I I knew that Northern Ireland was all white, but I'd never experienced that. So therefore going there, I had no uh, perceptions or ideas of what I would actually feel like when I'm in, in that situation. Uh, the Peace Bears family and friends of Peace Bears in Northern Ireland, I call it my second home. Uh, the world, they welcomed me wholeheartedly, uh, you know, and I felt like I was really home, but the truth is I still look different. So whenever we were at the schools coaching, uh, a few times I've had kids asking if I'm made out of chocolate, um, if when I have my Afro out, it feels like candy floss. So that was interesting. And I couldn't believe that um, a majority of the, 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 the kids, they had never seen a black person before. Um, in few cases, people didn't even know if it was okay to call me black. A few times people would be like, can, can we say black? And I was like, I am actually black. I would be offended if you say anything else. <laughs> so you can you can say black. So that was um, that was for me the also the culture shock because all my South African friends were all black, and now I'm in a country. There was I remember in my first six months in Northern Ireland, I used to count walking on Lisbon Road. I used to count how many black people I would see a day. And I'll come to the office and be like, oh my gosh, I saw two today. And we greet each other as if we know each other. So it is, um, it was quite different. Um, I struggled a little bit in terms of the social context, especially. Um, uh, But it it took time. I had to completely step out of my shell and immerse myself into this new culture. And, And it changed. And I got to learn and I got to make friends. Uh, post me stepping out of my space and really just learning to embrace the experience. After that experience in Northern Ireland, you come back to South Africa and move into a leadership role uh, with Peace Players. Now you're the executive director. You run the program. So that was your 
That was your dream, Nas. Now you you checked off two boxes. You probably have a third, and you're going to be taking Karen Dubois' <laughs> job uh, here in a in a few years uh, to run run the whole thing. And uh, we'll be cheering you on. What lessons from all of that did you then take back to South Africa as far as now running this program in South Africa and what what you felt like needed to be achieved with the young people that that you're now working with there? So when I, I said earlier that I learned about basketball when I was 18 years old, the first time I ever saw it on TV. So coming back into first staying into the organization and then being a fellow in Northern Ireland. Um, and I've always said, I remember the guy who was a director at the time, Smongiseni Vilagazi. I said to small, small one day, I want to, yeah, back then I was a coach. I said, one day I want to have your job. I'm going to be the next director of Peace Players. And as I sort of climbed the hierarchy, I got to see that this dream could be a possibility. And one, and what really motivated me, what made me say that statement so boldly that I wanted to be the next director because I wanted to first give back to peace players and make peace players what every young person dreams of. Like I wanted to do what peace players had done for me. I wanted to make sure that I afford many young people that opportunity. Uh, one of my thing, I, I always say that I wanted to make sure that no child finds out about basketball when they're 18 years old. Uh, they know that there's opportunity, they have access to opportunities, equal opportunities uh, for everyone. And if I can do it, uh, somebody else can do it. So coming back from Belfast, I learned a lot, uh, obviously, the, spending a lot of time with Gareth, learning the administrative and how do you run an organization. Um, the, the finance is just the background uh, knowledge. And coming back to South Africa, I didn't come back immediately as the executive director. I came back as the strategy and operations manager. And part of that is that I wanted to influence the strategy that obviously influences the future and the direction of where the organization needs to be. Uh, to continue to provide um, these endless opportunities for young people. So coming back with that knowledge and becoming the, uh, the strategy and operations and then later becoming executive director and looking back now, the amount of incredible young people that are coming behind me who have now stepped up and realized that it is possible. Um, if I can do it, they can do it too. And having now a guy who was one of my coaches when I was an area coordinator, he's now a fellow, Yankele, he's a fellow now at Peace Player Cyprus. Uh, everyone wants to explore these opportunities that they thought they were not for them, but everyone can see that it's all feasible. If you put your mind into it, you'll get the great people that will support you in your dreams. What does the program look like uh, today and we'll we'll give a pause that because of COVID nineteen, you know that that has obviously affected things everywhere and certainly in South Africa where you've been in lockdown now for about three months. When someone would go there today and see you know some participants in the leadership development program there, what would you describe that they're getting out of the program today? What is what does that look like uh, in Durban? Yes. Um, I spoke earlier about the complexity of South Africa as a country. Um, one thing that we've struggled with over the years was, I'll say, be bold and state it that what are we what we are actually doing as peace South Africa is bridging the racial divides 
that exists within the country. Um, and in the last three years, we developed the, the strategic plan that will enable us and allow us opportunities to bring youth from different communities. So over, over the years, majority of our program was in the, um, mainly in the underserved communities, um, in the townships, mostly black and colored um, uh, communities. And now we've expanded our program and diversified it more because we realize that in order for us to bring about this change you're speaking about, and to do what Peace Players is, we need to bring in the different races uh, from, so, from different socioeconomic backgrounds. And now it's a little bit more diverse. So we have about, uh, from our uh, program runs throughout the year, we have about uh, 600 participants, 700 with invitational participants that are not in our core program. Um, we offer programs for primary school, high school, uh, leadership development and also our coaches like me who are participants they go back and be the youth mentors that coach the participants and we facilitate life skills through the sport of basketball and seeing that now uh, our leadership development program that is a part of the global uh, friendship games and getting to participate now in the virtual learning there's just a mess of young leaders coming up who have changed perceptions not only um uh, change perceptions about different races because they've got to interact with them, not necessarily just reading about them and saying this is wrong, this is right, but now they see this change we're talking about and they have experienced being with a different person and their experiences are different. We have these leaders who are now, uh, who have access to opportunities that many of us and people before me didn't even have the opportunities um, to, to visit other communities um, we had recently, um, before we closed last year, we had a, a school that has been a friend of Peace Players for over 18 years. We have visited the school. We've taken kids from the township to visit the school before a few times. And we kept inviting uh, this uh, predominantly white school to visit Umlazi, which is a township. And they were like, hey, we're not sure about that. So we're not sure about security and safety. Uh, we don't think we can take our kids. And for the first time last year, uh, those children were able to visit a township and a rural school in Moloini as well. And the parents' mind and perceptions and the children, they were changed immediately. They were like, why are we not doing this this whole time? So the program right now is a lot more, um, it's a lot more uh, diverse and we are showing people on a daily basis the power uh, of sports um, to really bring and unite people. You told me an interesting story that I think happened not this summer, but last summer about a group of participants that started to notice as they began playing the games that there were some differences, right? Um, and could you, could you tell that story? I thought it was a really, a really cool story. I know that it touched you and, and, and many of the participants, and I think our, our listeners would love to hear it. Yeah, so it's actually with the, the school I was just talking about, um, hybrid primary, hybrid prep. Uh, when the kids visited Molweni, they noticed that the Molweni participants, which is a, in a rural black community, they didn't have shoes. They were not wearing shoes. And the kids asked the coach and the teachers with their parents there because the parents came to watch uh, their game. Uh, their Peace League game, and they said, uh, Coach, 
they don't have a full kit on. How come they're not wearing shoes? And then coach said to these little, uh, imagine these little uh, white 10-year-old ten, ten boys. Coach said, no, it's because they don't have them. And the kids looked at the coach and looked at each other and they were like, oh my gosh, okay, they don't even have shoes. What else do they not have if they don't have shoes? But these kids immediately walked to the sideline without being told or asking for permission. Um, they took off their shoes and walked into the court. Uh, parents and coaches are freaking out. They say, no, 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 if uh, they don't have shoes, we're the same age as them, we're also 10 years old, we can also play barefoot and nothing is going to happen. And that was amazing. And teachers and parents and everyone's jaw just dropped from disbelief that these kids were able to identify immediately the differences between them, not only do they look different, one is black and the other group is white, but also they got to notice the inequalities and the differences that these kids cannot even afford shoes. And immediately they wanted to be a part of that. And that just broke the wall because the other side got to see that, wow, for the first time, these kids are actually seeing us as people, as 10 year olds who are just like them. And now we're playing a game, they had fun, no one was bleeding at the end of it. And uh, we had parents even on Facebook just saying like, wow, that's, that's what it will take, you know, uh, for someone to make that first step and that first movement. Those kids, they did that. And immediately all of us, we couldn't believe that this change since 2001 we've been trying to, to make. And it's been hard. We've been scared. We've been holding back, saying that the other communities might reject us. Uh, when it happened, everyone was like, it is possible, and it just motivated all of us to keep on. One of the things that really touches me about that story is, you know, we're having a conversation in the United States right now, and and on a number of levels about racial equality and racial justice. And one of the things that comes up is privilege, yeah, uh, you know, especially sort of white privilege and how invisible that often is. To, to white people, they, they struggle with this concept. There's a lot of people that really push back about this. No, 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 I earned everything that I have. There's nothing nothing to do with privilege. It has nothing to do with my race. It just has to do with you know, me or my parents or my work ethic. But here are a, a group of 10-year-olds who recognize it immediately, right? That they, they have privilege, right? They have shoes and the other people don't. And instead of getting into an argument, well, I earned this or, you know, that makes me better than you or whatever, they gave up their privilege. They took off their shoes. Um, and that was something that was something they could see and feel at 10 years old and, and naturally do to understand that the game wouldn't be equal, right? If one group was out playing with shoes and the other group wasn't, right? That wouldn't actually be fair. Yeah. And the, the right thing to do wasn't to go and blame the other side that they didn't have shoes or to try to make some sort of argument that they, they were somehow inferior. The right thing to do was to take off their shoes, to, to be equal. It's interesting how 10-year-olds can do that yeah. and see that and get that. But it's so much harder for adults to, to see those inequities. And then, and then you know, one part, of, of, of obviously ending racism is, is changing our perceptions and changing the way that we see people. And we talk a lot in Peace Players about seeing people as people, right? And not as objects or not as stereotypes or whatever. But then there's the action 
that is really the anti-racist action that comes next, which is now I do something about it and not, not just change my perception, but I do something about it. And, and I, and I love that story because while it's small, it doesn't change everything that's going on in the larger dynamic. It's, it shows what's possible when people can see that difference and, and have the right sort of attitude towards it. Definitely. Yeah, it, it, it speaks, it speaks volume. And like I said, that, that story, we still get so emotional, just um, like you're saying that for, for if 10 year olds are able to understand what we preach and they're able to do that on their own, what's amazing is that they're going to go back home as tough as it is, obviously to change the, the adults, they're going to go back home and tell the story and share what they've done. And as a parent, the hope is that you'll get to see uh, the, the big smile uh, on your child's face, you'll be proud. Um, and it will then encourage you to start maybe challenging yourself um, and challenging your perceptions of the different race. And, and like you said, do, it, do something to change what is uh, the injustice that is going on. Now, as you've seen uh, what's been going on in, in America, uh, the last, especially the last month. I know you you played a big part in helping peace players craft, uh, you know, their response to this. And I'm curious what what you think right now about. I know you're not African American. Uh, I know that you didn't grow up in the United States, but you came from a country that has experienced the same legacy of racism. Uh, the same legacy of all the things that came from racism, the economic inequality, the social inequality, the educational inequality, all the other things that sort of came from that. And and South Africa has made efforts for for both good and, and certainly not all the way there. I'm curious what your reaction to all of this has been as a, as a South African to what you're seeing happening in the United States. It, it has been tough. It has been really tough because it was, it's more for us, it's like we're reliving our reality because that's what our reality has been in South Africa. And as, as a black person, those are the challenges and the hoops that you have to skip. I, 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 I make an example in South Africa where I say that we say, okay, we're not shooting each other anymore. We're not fighting. It's... We are all equal, we are all human, but we are not. We don't have access to the same resources um, as everybody else, education, as you've explained already. And that is not, that is not fair. That is not, that is, that is, that is not fair. Um, and that is not equal. Uh, so how seeing what has been going on in the US really for us, especially in South Africa and Africa as a whole, it made all of us really speak up to say, these are the injustice we keep speaking about. Um, the reason why there's so much inequality in the world, it's because of, we don't have access to the same opportunities, even if we go to the same school. We don't, you're, because you're a different race, your privilege is different from mine, and you need to understand that. Um, an example that happened also with Peace Players South Africa a few years ago, um, there was a tournament, a private school tournament. So most private schools, all private schools in South Africa, they predominantly white. 
um, and they hosted a basketball tournament for private schools. And then we asked if we could participate as peace players, as an organization. And for a few years, yes, they allowed us. They say, yes, you can participate. And then this one year, they tripled, not more than tripled, like the fees moved from 2,500 to 10,500 and said, yes, still you can participate. And I'm like, that's exactly what we're speaking about, that you know that the type of children we're working with, the organization that we're coming from, we cannot afford that fee. So you are coming out saying that, no, I'm not prejudiced. I'm not uh, oppressing you. Yet I will ask you to cough out 10,500, knowing very well that you cannot afford that opportunity. And seeing what is going on in the US, it speaks uh, very loud and the reality of what is going on for every black person in the world. Um, that our lives um, are not equal to uh, the lives of the white people. We are still oppressed, even if you are living in a democratic country uh, or in a free country, you still do not have access to the same opportunities um, as everybody else. If you are able to even taste um, a little bit of, 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 of glory, it's because you have to jump to your, you should have, you have jumped over 20 stories of hoops and maybe one of you might make it but even when you make it that's not quite making it you still have black tax in south africa i don't know what you call it in the u.s black tax where you still have to take care of your family um your salary more than a half of it is you taking care of your siblings of your family because they are unemployed they don't have access to it they don't have access to education so that is not equal and what has been happening in the u.s it, it spoke to exactly what is happening for in South Africa and Africa and for every black person in the world. In the United States, there was this long, terrible stain of slavery that lasts until there's a civil war that's fought and that in, in, in ends in 1865. And while slavery officially ends, uh, the discrimination and racism and uh, separate and inequality continues. Uh, there's laws passed that separate the races. There's all the all the problems that continue to still exist. There's a civil rights movement a hundred years later in the United States that fights for equality for African Americans under the law. But we don't do what South Africa does, which is have a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. We we don't go back and open up space for people to tell the stories about what happened, for people to come forward and confess that they participated in um, the system, that they hurt people. There was no sense of what I think about in reconciliation where there's truth-telling, right, and a, and a national reckoning about what happens, an opportunity then for people to have forgiveness and then an opportunity to actually address those inequalities uh, and and have real justice, and not just the sort of justice that punish, but the sort of justice that makes whole. And while South Africa's attempt at that was imperfect, it also is a powerful example of a different way of sort of going about this, um, led by Bishop Desmond Tutu and 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 Mandela himself. And and it, it has made some differences, I think, in South Africa compared to where we're we haven't even gone that far yet in the, in the United States. I'm curious what lessons you've learned from all of this that you could help us 
um, right? As, as we're going through this national reckoning right now, and it, it's painful for, for so many people and they're, they're on edge and, and so many of the voices of African-Americans that have been ignored, have been silenced, have, have been gaslighted are now starting to be taken seriously and people are, are, you know, are starting to listen. What advice would you have for us now as we hopefully start entering into some real process of national reckoning and ultimately reconciliation? The first thing is it will take a lifetime for everyone to be ready, right? Um, the first thing that needs to be changed is policies that influence and, and speak on these inequalities is putting policies in place that uh, safeguard uh, human rights that are inclusive of everyone. Um, if that is hard, the people, uh, the immediate thing that I say, the people that know better need to do better. Um, in South Africa, a lot of blood um, was shed and lost. Our forefathers and fathers lost their lives fighting for the freedom that we have. Uh, watching the streets of America and, and the world these last few weeks and people out and saying this is enough, we want justice. Um, it's going to take that. People stepping up, but change and people on the streets, they can go out on the streets and cry uh, for as much as they can. True change comes when constitutions, policies are changed. Uh, those things are addressed because that's where the benefit is. Because in South Africa, land was stolen. Like I said, over 71%, 71 and 73% of the land in South Africa, which is our biggest natural resource, is not owned by us. Therefore, we don't benefit from it. It was stolen for, from black people. So basic uh, things like, it's not basic, obviously, <laughs> but situations where you actually look at how do you bring up the, and build an inclusive society, an inclusive country where everyone is heard and everyone can contribute and benefit from all of these resources and the, the, the economy that you need to make those changes that will force government and uh, companies, corporates to put policies in their workplace and make sure that people are not hired because they're black, <laughs> They are hired because of the difference that they can make and they're given an equal opportunity as well. So I would say start with the policies, include people, but that's going to take a long time to change. So right now is for the people that have voices like you and many other Americans, especially the other side, the people that have, um, the people that come from the privilege, that they need to educate other people so that we can have more numbers uh, speaking up uh, about these injustice, uh, the injustice and encouraging everyone else to join in and make sure that we're creating an inclusive society. So the people that know better, they shouldn't keep quiet. We, we need them to come along and speak up and support um, the people that are not doing so well. You've been a big advocate uh, for peace players being part of the change in South Africa we have a pro program in Brooklyn and Detroit and Baltimore in Chicago and Los Angeles. They're new. They're just getting started right now. What role could you see peace players playing in that national reckoning or change? Yeah. Uh, like I said, with the programs that are already happening in the USA, something that peace players has always done really well from the beginning 
is giving young people a voice and letting young people be the change that they want to see in the world. Uh, in a case, for instance, with me here in South Africa, coming up from the organization and actually leading the organization, our coaches, like 98% of our coaches, are, are the graduates of the program. So it's the same thing in the U.S. that uh, the investment has to come from the people of that community, um, making sure that you're investing as much resources so that they could own the program because that way they'll be able to nurture it, knowing exactly um, what that community needs. And to actually break down what are the challenges in the, in, in the U.S., and we've done that recently with all different sites, all five sites, including the U.S., of what is the problem in, in, in America, and then how do we think we're going to change that through our theory of change. But what we've also introduced, uh, what we've been working on in the, since Last October, uh, when, uh, when I was in the US, we've been working on our diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion, um, training for the entire organization, putting together policies that we need within our organization to make sure that we are, we are walking and talking the talk, but also there's policies in place that hold us accountable as an organization. So I would say for, uh, for the US sites, just to make sure that they're staying true uh, to, to that identity and knowing that as peace players, we have a voice uh, and the ability to actually influence those, uh, the government policies. Uh, as small as we are, we're able to, to partner with other organizations and show them what is really reconciliation, what is conversation, and, what, uh, and we, through this we'll be able to then make sure that we are sharing these resources across everybody else that needs them. She's Nasifi Kafu. She's amazing. And uh, I've really enjoyed this conversation. And to introduce you to so many of our listeners, it, I wish you could meet Nas in person because on, you're hearing some of it come through. But there's this magnetic, enthusiastic, hopeful, inspiring vibe that, that Nas gives when she's coaching, when she's leading a facilitation session or a learning session um, with young people. She's doing incredible things uh, in South Africa right now. And, and I, I, I learned a lot listening today and I hope our listeners have as well. And, and Nas, I just can't wait until you're running the entire organization internationally. I, I believe it, I believe it's going to be, be the case um, someday soon. No, definitely. Uh, everything, anything and everything is possible. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, this has been a big week for us. I'm actually really excited to have you on this week. Our book finally launched uh, this week, uh, Dangerous Love. You can get it uh, anywhere that books are sold. It's also available in ebook. It's also av available on audiobook as well. And um, Nas is a amazing example of someone who's practicing dangerous love at both in her life uh, and in her community. And we're just so grateful to have you on. Thank you so much. Jeff. You've been listening to the dangerous love podcast. Aloha. Aloha.